When we get into speaking about holiness, one of the things that afflicts us is the idea that now we're going to be really strange. And we are, in a way, but not in the way you think. We continue to work this month with the holiness tradition. You know, a life that functions well. The virtuous life. Just talking about real life, an authentic life. I'd like to share with you a special talk from back in 1989 at one of the first Renovare events. It's Dallas Willard speaking on holiness. And like all Dallas talks, it holds a certain timelessness. A few years after this talk was given, I was a night janitor at a middle school. I'd push my little cart through the dark and quiet halls with a library of cassette tapes from Renovare speakers. I listened to those talks over and over. You know, that job turned out to be one of the most significant markers in my formation. And I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to share these old talks with you. I like to say that Dallas won me over with his tears. When I first heard Dallas speak some 20 years ago, I was in a place in my life where I didn't trust anyone in a suit with a Bible and a microphone. So unassuming, clearly not trying to impress anyone, crying as he read a verse or prayed a prayer. It so moved me, and so I listened. My name is Nathan Foster. And welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Richard suffers sometimes from excessive bouts of kindness and generosity. <laughs> I do hope you will take out your notes to page 11 and 12. One of the drawbacks of being a uh, university professor is that I tend to come with too much to say. And I'm going to try not to do that, but uh, so I take the op, I take the out of putting a lot of stuff on the notes. And I was glad to have Richard's invitation to handle some notes. I will not be able to cover all this material, but I want you to uh, watch it and follow along as best you can, and that will speed us up some. Now, yesterday morning when we came in and I heard uh, Roger Fredrickson uh, tell those two jokes, uh, I thought that was pretty good. And then last night when I sat here and listened to Bill Boswig. I said, I'm not going to tell any jokes. <laughs> I said, all hope of fame in that quarter is gone. <laughs> I'll have to look somewhere else. <laughs> but it's been a real great pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to it for months, and I must say, the Lord has come and, and met with us. And that's really what makes the difference. Dear Lord Jesus, won't you come and teach us this morning so that the insides of our hearts and our minds will work better. 
like you intended them to work. Help us to understand holiness this morning. Help us to see how good it is, how wonderful, how right it is. And help our hearts to pine for it. Because it is so good, and it is so like you. And then help us to see more clearly your way toward it. Be our teacher this morning. Let your spirit that you're sent to teach us draw nigh to every heart. Glorify yourself in your people. Amen. Now, if you would keep in mind the passage which Richard read to us earlier, I would like to begin by reading just a couple of other passages, very short. First of all, from um, Ephesians. The fifth chapter, I'm sorry, the fourth chapter, verse 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, your old way of walking, put off the old man, which has been corrupted by the deceitfulness of lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. True holiness. And in, in Colossians, I wish I had time to work through this whole chapter this morning because it is so profound and so important for us. But just a few verses, and we will refer to it again later. Mortify, therefore, your members. This is Colossians 3, 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which sake things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. And you walked in these things, son, in times past. Verse 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Verse 12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on agape, God-like love, which is the bond and completeness of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. 
These verses which Paul, we've read from Paul this morning, express the goal of the Christian life. It's fulfillment as we walk with the Lord and seek to know the reality of his kingdom. Day to day, where we are, we come into the fullness of true holiness in Christ Jesus. Many things have happened to rob the church of their, their heritage in holiness. And we want to try to deal with some of these things this morning. And the best way to do that, I believe, is just to begin by trying to say as clearly as possible what true holiness is. If you look at your notes, you'll see that I have made some remarks about the words that are translated as holiness. And it's very important for us as we think on this subject this morning that we divorce it from many of the stereotypes that have been used to characterize people who are holy. For example, it's in the English language, almost always you will hear the phrase, holy than thou. Holier than thou. It almost goes with the idea of being holy. It's hard for people to think about being holy than, than the association of that holier than thou comes into the mind. And people shy away from it, don't they? Because it it's, it's, looks almost as a bad thing. Holier than thou, a person who is holy. So if you, were, if, you, if you were holy, you would have to think of yourself as not holy. Because if you thought yourself as holy, you'd be holier than thou. Right? <laughs> So you get yourself caught almost in having to lie about yourself or be unholy. It's like humility. You know, the, one of the things about humility is you're not supposed to know it if you're, humili if you're humble. Well, how are you going to handle that if you're not supposed to know it? The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You see, Satan comes in and confusion comes in and the flesh comes in and they take these absolutely crucial words and they associate things with them. You see, another thing that that uh, is associated with holiness is terrible legalism. Uh, the idea that we have these little practices, uh, that if you do that, you're holy, and if you don't do that, you're not holy, and boy, you better watch out because, uh, yes, most of the things uh, you've already failed at anyway. And uh, so it's all shot. And, or it's some little trivial thing that everyone knows doesn't matter in the least. How much lipstick you've got on, or how much money you've got, or what kind of house you live in, or place you live in. All of those things are made to be associated with holiness by one group or another. You know, if you're really holy, God will bless you. And that means you'll have whatever it is. So we have all of these problems. Now, I want to just make a simple statement about holiness. And I base it on the language that is used both in the Old and in the New Testament. And I've tried to state it here just as clearly as possible what holiness is. The word erite in Greek, it just refers to something which works well. We talk about a holy life, we're talking about a life that works. And we're so used to life not working that we think a life that works is abnormal. You can't imagine a television show named Wichita Virtue. Where is that name? <laughs> Since the television show. <laughs> but not virtue. You see, we, we have assumed the normality of failure and viciousness 
and corruption. Whereas, as a matter of fact, in the eyes of God, that's what's abnormal. And he calls us simply to be functional human beings in his universe. Erite just means something that functions well. And that is, of course, what comes as a result of the process of redemption in the kingdom of heaven. Another little other language that I have used here to characterize this, the power to act as we ought, the power to be response-able, separate response and able in responsible, and you get able to respond, able to respond to the demands of life. Another phrase I put in the notes is appropriate power, appropriate power. For the human being, the strength simply to do what you ought to do when you ought to do it is what we're talking about. You look in Richard's book on the celebration of discipline, you'll see a phrase which says that the disciplined person is simply the person who can do what needs to be done when it ought to be done. That's all holiness is. It's the power to do what needs to be done when it ought to be done. If you watch these musicians, you'll notice that that's what they do, isn't it? They do what needs to be done when it ought to be done. I might be able to get in all of the notes on one of these songs if you gave me half a day, but I wouldn't be able to do it when it ought to be done on the piano because I'm not disciplined in that. I don't function with that. And Barry just sits there and does it and enjoys it because he's disciplined. You see, he has appropriate power. You understand what I mean? He has appropriate power. He is response-able. He is able to respond. Now, please hold on to that idea, because when we get into speaking about holiness, one of the things that afflicts us is the idea that now we're going to be really strange. Now we're going to be really strange, and we are. In a way, but not in the way you think. We're going to be strange just because we work. We work well. We do what needs to be done. We're able to listen to people and love people and uh, help one another and do our job, whether it's on the farm or in the shop or the schoolroom or wherever it may be. We simply function well because, and now we come to the deeper levels of holiness, we are rooted in another order. We are rooted in another order. I want to try to illustrate just a little bit what this kind of responsibility is now with some illustrations of this being rooted in another order. And we'll just take some biblical illustrations. You remember, for example, the case of Joseph. Joseph was a young man who was kidnapped and taken away from his family and into Egypt. And there he was faithful to the righteousness that he understood through the God of his fathers. And you remember how Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. And there he came under duress. We today would call it sexual harassment on the job, and he could have called in the authorities and done something about it. But in those days, he couldn't do anything about it. Potiphar's wife was desirous of lying with him and insisted upon it, 
And he would not do it. And he said, I will not do this great wickedness and sin against God and against your husband who's trusted me with everything in his household. And finally, she insisted to the point of laying hold of him. And you remember that Joseph simply let her have his coat and ran. Now you see, Joseph was a responsible individual. He was able to respond in the situation. He did what needed to be done when it needed to be done. Daniel was the same way. Daniel was a man in great position also, you will recall. And you may remember that some of his adversaries decided that they wanted to get at him and hurt him. And they watched him. I think this is one of the greatest testimonies to the nature of holiness that you can find. They watched him and they said, listen, if we're going to get anything on this fellow, it's going to have to be in his religious devotion. That's the only thing we can find on him. And so they, of course, got the uh, king to sign a decree that anyone who bowed down to any other god than, uh, than the uh, king himself and his uh, religious uh, idols uh, would be thrown into the lion's den. And they got him precisely on the point of his reliability, his responsibility. He responded to God, and they knew when he would be praying, and they knew if they went to that spot, they would find him violating the king's decree. And Daniel, when he heard about the decree, simply went right about his business. That's holiness. Holiness is going about your business. It's doing the right thing. It's doing it when it needs to be done. It's doing it as it needs to be done. It's reliable people who are rooted in a greater order, a higher kingdom. I've heard it said that the lions didn't eat Daniel because he was all backbone. <laughs> there is a point to that. But he wouldn't have had that backbone if he hadn't been tied into the kingdom of God. He knew. He knew whom he was serving. He knew his presence. And just like his three friends, you'll remember, before they threw them into the fiery furnace, uh, the king threatened them. If they didn't bow down, he said, well, you know, they said, uh, king, we can't do anything about that. Uh, you, you do whatever you see right. Uh, we're not going to bow down to you. And uh, if our God will deliver us, and if he doesn't deliver us, that's okay too. And you remember it was when they were thrown in the fiery furnace, the king looked in there and he saw not three people, but four. And the scripture says, one like unto the Son of Man. I see, we mustn't miss that. Because when we speak about being responsible, we have to recognize that we cannot be responsible in our own strength. We were never made to be responsible in our own strength. We were not made to run on our own. We were made to run and do our work on the power of God. We have to really absorb that and take it in very deeply and understand that holiness is not something that is our project. Holiness is not something we get. Virtue is not something we get. It is a relationship which we maintain. We maintain a relationship with God, and in that we know holiness. That comes through his word. His word is a primary way of maintaining that relationship. Listen to this, this word from Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, 
but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. The first psalm is a beautiful statement of that same principle. You might want to turn and just mark the language here and, and put the cross-reference to Joshua 1.8 because you see this is, the, this is a large part of the secret of maintaining the relationship which makes us response-able people that gives us appropriate power. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Day and night. We'll return to that in a moment, because you see what we have here is a classic case of a spiritual discipline. This man does not try to undertake in his own strength to bear the fruit of righteousness. He takes the indirect route that is appointed to creatures such as we to access the strength, the power, the wisdom of God into his life. Listen to what happens. Then he shall be like a tree. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The roots go down deep into the soil and reach the water, and a hidden source of nourishment and life comes to it, and that tree brings forth its fruit in its season. See, it brings forth its fruit when it's supposed to. Read it that way. It brings forth its fruit when it's supposed to. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. And then we read the other side of the, of, the, uh, of the ledger, and we look at unholiness and the cause of unholiness. They are not rooted in the reality of God. Now, we heard last night the great message. The time has come. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is now available. And that's the message that we hear and the message we, we preach as Christians. The kingdom of heaven has drawn nigh. It's as if we were walking down the hall and I were to say to you, turn because the auditorium is at hand. The auditorium is not about to come. It's already there. It isn't that something is about to happen, which might not. And one of the great curses on the church today has been a teaching about so many things that are in the scripture and that are offered to the person who wishes to live the life of godliness. But for one reason or another, it is said, well, that's not available now. Uh, sorry. It's like you go into a, a place to buy some furniture and you look in the catalog and you see all these wonderful things. You say, oh, I'd like that. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have that in stock. And many people read the Bible that way. They read the Bible and they see miracles and they see holiness and they see victory and they see joy in the midst of pain and triumph through martyrdom and death. And someone says, well, that's not for today. Selective dispensationalism, I call it. It's the doctrine which looks into the scripture and sees something that we don't have today and it says that's not for us. 
rather than saying, we don't have it today because we have not understood it and reached out for it and received it as God would have us have it. All right? Responsible, appropriate power that comes to those who are hooked in, rooted into the kingdom of God. Now when that comes, then we begin to see what normal life is. Now I'm going to read you a statement about normal life in the kingdom of God. It's in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have a statement about what normal life is in the kingdom of God. Now, normal doesn't mean usual. It means what sets the norm. It means it's the standard of attainment that is good. And it can be usual. Norms are there to be realized. And listen to these words now from 1 Corinthians 13. This is actually a statement about love, but you see, when we are tied in and rooted into the kingdom of God, what happens is God, who is love, moves into our lives, and we learn how to love. I just rejoiced in Bill's proclamation of the abundant, lavish love of God last night. And we don't hear enough of that, you see. Jesus preached that. One of the great verses in Jesus' sermons is Luke 6.35, where it says, He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. He just lavishes his love. That's the nature of God. Why does he do that? Because that's best. That's best. And you know why we don't do it? It's because we don't understand it's best, and that's largely because we have not rooted ourselves in the experience of God's loving kingdom so that we can be set free from the kind of worry about what's going to happen to us. But when love comes in and we see it in God and we see it in Christ and we understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we should not perish but should have everlasting life and we open our lives then love begins to move in. I was thrown in a state of bondage for some time by a well-meaning minister who said that what I should do here with verses 4 through 8 of 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, was put my name in there instead of love. And that I should read that Dallas suffereth long and is kind. Well, it wasn't going so well just on that short run. But when I got down to Dallas, envieth not, that just blew, blew me out of the water. It isn't, that, isn't what, that isn't how it works. It's love that does this. And insofar as I am able to let love move into my life, and I find the avenues of opening myself and of claiming love, then I begin to reflect and show forth what is here ascribed to love. And remember, God is love. It is God who moves into the life through his kingdom rule. And when this happens, then here's what we see. Agape suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy, doesn't lift itself up. It doesn't blow itself up, puff up. It doesn't behave unseemly does not seek its own, is not easily provoked, 
does not think of evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, puts up with everything. It never fails. Charity, agape, love, never fails. This is a picture of the person who is rooted in the reality of God's kingdom. And as they are rooted, their inner self is transformed, and they are able to move beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. We have to talk about that some now. And in a moment, I want to make a couple of general statements, but the two great enemies of holiness are perfectionism and legalism. Perfectionism and legalism. And we have to understand Jesus' teaching about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look with me just a moment, perhaps we should take time to look at Matthew 5 and see this contrast. There are three places in Jesus' teachings which he says something very strong about entering the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the first one is in Matthew 5.20. And here he says, Unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, he says that unless you repent and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And in John 3, we are told that except you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. These are three different aspects of one great truth. And that great truth is that if we are going to be rooted in the kingdom of heaven and bear the fruit of the kingdom of heaven, we have to move beyond the established patterns of actions which guide normal human life. Those established patterns of action constitute the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and unfortunately, not all the scribes and the Pharisees are dead. And there are many, many, many ways in which we can be a scribe and a Pharisee. A scribe is basically someone who knew the law so well they could tell you everything that was right and everything that was wrong. Just ask them. They'll tell you. And they may tell you if you don't ask them, in fact. Uh, because they just feel like this is their call in life, is to go around pointing out what is right and what is wrong. And, of course, there's some reason to think that that's an important kind of thing to do. But the problem is that if you do it in the wrong way, you don't give life to people, you kill them. Because you don't come to the heart level where there is hope of contacting God and getting a new life going. As Bill said last night, having the pilot light installed, and getting that spirit burning in there so that you're in touch with a new reality. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says in verse 20 of Matthew 5, unless your righteousness goes beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Why not? 
Well, you see, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is located entirely at the level of action. It is an attempt to control what is essentially the output of human personality, and it does not touch the springs of the action and the inside of the heart where the person, what we really are, as distinct from what we do, resides. Jesus said to his followers, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Why is the leaven of the Pharisees hypocrisy? And by the way, he didn't say beware of Pharisees. He said beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees, the spirit that moves the Pharisees. Why is it hypocrisy? You see, the Pharisee sets a standard which he thinks is right, he tries to relate it to the teachings of God's law and God's word, and then he tries to manage to do and achieve his own righteousness by reference to that standard he set. Now what happens? He always fails. He always fails. Even though he cuts it down to try to suit his own size, he always fails. Now, if you're really concerned about righteousness and you fail, what's the next step? Hypocrisy. That's the next step. Now, when hypocrisy comes, then everyone runs for cover. You see, and that's how very often we live, hidden from one another. Jesus was just the opposite. Jesus lived out in the open. I recently heard a wonderful statement that the best indirect proof of the divinity of Jesus was that he went on a camping trip for two and a half years with a bunch of men who still believed he was the Messiah when it was over. <laughs> that's tremendous. See, that's the way Jesus was. And so now we want to understand that we have to have a rootedness in the kingdom and that, in, that rootedness transforms the inner self so that we can just be who we are. And if we're wrong, since we're rooted in the kingdom of love, we know where help is, and we know how to get it. And we know it's not by covering up. We know it's not by, by hypocrisy. So we open ourselves and trust towards God. And of course, that ties into the little child that I mentioned. You have to repent and become like a little child. A little child is open. They don't have the devices for hiding. You have to help a child be a hypocrite. You know? You have to help them. Just like you have to help them pull off a joke. Because, you know, a joke, you have to keep the cat in the bag before you let the cat out. And a child can't even keep the cat in the bag long enough to let him out. So you have to help them, right? You know how that goes around the house. There's no cover there. That's a little child. You have to be born again so you can get back there and get a new life and start over that way. And that's what roots you in the kingdom of heaven and transforms you and gives you the possibility of going for something deeper. And oh, Jesus taught on this so beautifully, and I wish we had time this morning to just go through Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and look at how he lays out on the one hand the terrible, killing, death-dealing righteousness of hypocrisy and Phariseeism on the one hand which says things like, well, 
I, I, I am sexually pure because I didn't do anything. Listen to these words. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman for the purpose of lusting after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, Jesus went right into the heart. And he saw the abuse of self and others that lay in the personal relationship between a man and a woman, a woman and a man, where nothing had been done according to that righteousness. But Jesus didn't, by the way, say if you have a sexual temptation. He's talking about a specific kind of situation where people are using someone of the opposite sex to roil their lust and stir them up in a way which is lamentably all too familiar to us all. You have to understand what Jesus is talking about. He goes on to say, If your right eye offends you, and pluck it out, and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that if your members should perish, and not your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offend you, cut it off, and cast into hell. Now, you have to be careful how you understand that. Jesus is not recommending that. He is drawing a conclusion from the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If your sin is in what you do with your members and your eye is troubling it, get rid of your eye and you're a pure person, right? You think Jesus is recommending that? No, it's exactly the opposite. This is what in logic we call a reductio ad absurdum. It is saying, if you hold this position, look at this absurd conclusion that follows. The Pharisee thought on his theory, of course he didn't think it, but he had to think it if his theory was right. If you just chop off all your members, you'd roll into heaven a mutilated stump. <laughs> Jesus did not believe that. He did not advocate that. But you fix yourself up where you can't do anything, and you're righteous on the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, right? He didn't mean that. And I don't need to tell you that. And, of course, he was a masterful teacher. I just rejoice in the power of God in his son Jesus on the face of this earth and his wonderful teachings and how he was able. You know, there wasn't a person in that crowd that missed the point. They all heard. They knew what that meant. And they said, oh, now I know. It's the heart that has to be renewed. Now, very quickly, let me just say two things to you about legalism and perfectionism. And we have to understand these things. It's absolutely crucial that we understand them because when we begin to talk about holiness, one of the first things we have to deal with are all of the terrible things that have, been, that have come up about perfectionism. And let me just say this to you, that the answer to perfectionism is progress, not resignation to sin. The answer to perfectionism is progress. No matter how far I go, I've still got plenty of room to go. No matter how far. Paul, in his wonderful statement in Philippians, the third chapter, you'll remember, it just puts this so well. When he talks about his own progress in Christ, and he begins by talking about his attainments in verses 6 and through 9. But now listen to what he says as he continues here. That I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I really believe that Paul was not worried about being resurrected after he died. I think he was interested in walking into the resurrection life before he died. And so he continues, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I look at Jesus Christ and I realize what God has called me to, and I press towards the mark. Oh, what have I attained? Suppose I were to quit stealing. Wouldn't that be big? Suppose I were to quit cursing or quit some of these other things. We all think about quitting things, you know. That's what we haven't even begun to sense what it's about. We're talking about a life lived in the kingdom of God where love and holiness with it flow naturally from us and easily as it did from Jesus himself where the inward part is renewed. So as Jesus said, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. When the tree is made good, the fruit naturally comes as it ought to be. See, if we don't understand this, we are left in an untenable position in relationship to our discipleship to our Lord. And that is the, the, the position of resignation to sin. I say in effect, well... I can't do anything about it. I can't be perfect. So I'm just going to sit down in the middle of it. I often have to ask people, are you planning to keep on sinning? Are you planning? Well, no, no. Well, are you planning not to keep on sinning? No, I'm not doing that either. Well, what is your attitude towards this? See, we kind of like to have a little door back here which says, well, I don't really want to sin, but if I need to, I will. <laughs> and I don't want to have that door shut because I might need to. <laughs> there has to be a kind of burning of bridges here and cutting the rope that holds us and a commitment to God's power to uphold us and accept us when we fail. Now, I've used language here which I hope will provoke you to deep thought. And it brings me around closer to where I want to conclude this morning. And that is, are you planning to stop sinning? And I hope you think about that. Have you decided to stop sinning? Have, are you planning on it? What's your plan? Now, I suggest that if you don't have at least a hope, you're resigned to continue in sin. You're resigned to continue in sin. If you have that decision or that hope, you will be put under considerable pressure, especially if you tell your friends about it. But that might not be the worst thing that could happen to you. 
And since, hopefully, you're no longer here to make your reputation, mine's already shot, I don't know about yours. I shouldn't worry so much then about what people are going to say to if I tell them, now my intent is to follow the Lord and to walk in holiness. And then they would say, well, looky there, you didn't do it. See, it creates a new attitude in the fellowship of the believers, believe me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had places, our churches, where we could come and we could stand and we could introduce ourselves and say things like, Hi, I'm Dallas. I'm a recovering sinner. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And you'd say, Hi, Dallas. <laughs> Hi, Dallas. And we could go from there. Right? I'm a recovering sinner. That's what the churches were called and given to be, as recovering sinners. We're not supposed to be Places where we're just waiting to die and go to heaven. See, we've heard a lot of us a gospel of sin management, which tells us how to manage our sins. And as far as our life is concerned, we're kind of just sitting there on the freeway of life with our hood up, waiting for the heavenly AA truck to come <laughs> and take us home. See. Or maybe some preacher to come and jumpstart us and get us to chug on down the road. To the next Sunday. And uh, we, we have to get out of that attitude. We have to get real. We have to get down with it. We have to get down where Jesus lived and where he condemned sin in the flesh. I love that phrase from Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of life in Christ Jesus has brought a deliverance through the fact that Jesus came and condemned sin in the flesh. How did he do that? Well, he just got down there right in the flesh in his incarnation and showed how awful, how pointless, how stupid sin is. That's how he condemned it. He showed it up for what it was. And then to handle our sins that we had committed them, as Colos uh, that we'd already committed, as Colossians says, he took them all, and right by his cross, they had a list up there of Dallas Willard and Bill Voswig and, uh, and, and Richard Foster's and their wives' sins. They just put them right up there, right on his cross. Nailed them to his cross. See, He took care of it. And sin is managed because new life floods in. Okay, the answer to perfectionism is progress, not resignation. The answer to legalism is inward transformation, not antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is one of those big $50 words which you have to uh, look up in the dictionary. It just means people who are against the law who are lawless, outlaws. And we have a lot of people who don't understand that Jesus came to show how good the law was and to fulfill it. And that we go through and beyond the law. We don't set it aside. We don't destroy it. We fulfill it. And the answer to legalism is an inward perfection of the self 
in the image of Christ, the completion of the self, perfect, perfect in that sense, the completion of the self, in the image of Christ, so that the natural outflow is the work of the law and much beyond. Listen to these words from Galatians, referring to the work of the Spirit in the believer and how that relates to the law. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. And Paul says wryly, against such there is no law. Against such there is no law. Now very quickly, just a few words about how we, how we enter into this. If you look on your outline, you'll see under heading four, the transfer, transformation unto holiness. And I have here three points. I'm just going to talk briefly about them. You want to think of this as a kind of golden triangle of spiritual progress into Christ-likeness. Three sides that come together. I've given you three things here. None of them are intended to work without the others. Each is involved in the others. Each works with the others to bring us into the fullness that Christ intended for us. I think I'd like to spend most of the time I have available just looking at the passage from James 1, which is listed there in your notes. Listen to what James... Now, James was Jesus' little brother. Jesus' little brother. And keep that mind in mind now as we read this. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your patience, of your faith, works patience. You test your faith, and what you get is patience. And then patience has her complete work in you, and when that is done, you will be perfect and entire, wanting in nothing. Completed by patience. See, the idea is this. You're here in the middle of life, and everyone has lots of troubles. Now, if you can bring yourself to accept those troubles joyfully rather than rejecting them, your faith will be tested and you will find how real God is. And because God is real, then you will be led to have patience in those circumstances and you will increasingly see the revelation of the reality of God and your heart and mind will be filled with the riches of his kingdom, and out of that faith, you will be able to live as Christ lived. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 5. Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. In other words, we got a touch of grace through faith, then we stepped into a room that was just filled with it. And now we're standing there rejoicing in the hope that God will be glorified in our lives. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Underline that, glory in tribulation. Okay, now, we need to just emphasize that in order to grow into the fullness of holiness and virtue in Christ, we accept our troubles. We don't throw them away. That means, above all, we accept who we are. We, we stop wishing we were somebody else. 
that we had a different kind of past. We accept who we are and we say, this is God's gift to me, this is my life. We accept it. And in that life, those tribulations which come to us, all is inseparable from life, aren't they? No matter where we are, tribulations come with that. We glory in tribulation. Now, we kind of make a joke about this around the church, I'm afraid, about glorying in tribulation. This is very serious material, glorying in tribulation. Let me put it to you this way. Where do you think James learned this? James learned it from watching Jesus. I want to say to you something about Jesus that most people do not realize, and that is that for most of his adult life, he was what we today would call a blue-collar worker. And everything that he taught, he put into practice as a blue-collar worker. Would you think about that for a moment? He knew what it was to deal with customers. Any of you deal with customers here? Yes, you deal with customers. Some customer, we say. He knew what it was to loan his tools and not get them back. He knew that. And he couldn't run down to the True Value hardware and buy another one. He understood all of that. One of the touching little passages in Luke, Lind, hoping for nothing again, the old version says. One of the newer versions, I think it's the NIV, says, Lind, not despairing of anybody. Isn't that great? Isn't that what we do? Well, you know, you you loan this sweater and you say, boy, I know how this is going to come back. Lending is an interesting view into our faith. Uh, People taking away your goods and not asking. Jesus put all that into practice. And he learned in the course of the daily tribulations of life the abundant presence of God. That is given to us. I want to say to you in all seriousness, when you have a flat tire, when you have a check that bounces, when you have a child that is difficult to deal with, when things don't go right, glory in it. Because you know what you're going to find if you glory in it? God is faithful. He's got plenty. There's no shortage. Your needs will be provided and more. But you will never, never know that if you gripe, if you reject, if you throw away, because you are disposing of this chosen instrument of God to bring you to perfection in faith. Other things that we need to mention here very quickly, the movement of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be dealt with in other sessions, and I'll go quickly over it. I've already read a passage about the fruit of the Spirit from the fifth chapter of Galatians, but we see here that it is the work of the Spirit, the tender movement of the Spirit of God in us us and around us. us. And as we learn to identify that and give sway to it, we are led to see the goodness of holiness, the power of holiness, we are led to understand that we can do what we need to do 
when we should do it, that we can trust God, that God comes through. Finally, we have plans to make also. God does not do everything for us. We must be very careful in our understanding of salvation to see the difference between meriting and receiving. We don't merit any of this. Salvation as generously conceived of as possible is still all of grace as far as merit is concerned. But we must receive the grace of God. We must learn how to receive it. And that's what Paul is talking about in that passage I read at the outset when he talks about mortifying the members which are upon the earth, putting off the old man, and putting on the new man. He's talking about planning to become righteous. What do I mean by that? I mean taking seriously the places where we fail by omission and commission and planning to do differently. Thomas Akempis, in his wonderful masterpiece, The Imitation of Christ, says in one place, if we only remedied one fault a year, soon we would be like Christ. One fault a year. Now, what's interesting to, is to say that today we're not in the business of thinking of getting rid of our faults. We are, in fact, by and large, resigned to just staying where we are. But the fact of the matter is we need to plan to cooperate with the grace of God. Where we fail, whether it's by commission or omission, we need to learn to do those things which will make a difference, and we can do that. And these may be more or less formalized into what we call the disciplines for the spiritual life, Solitude and silence and fasting, study, service, worship. There's no closed list of all those things, by the way. What they all have in common is something very simple. In them, we do what we can in order to enable us to receive the grace of God to do what we cannot in ourselves. By direct action, we do what we can in order that indirectly we would be able to do what we cannot. That's the law of all discipline, and it is still in force in the kingdom of grace. The mere fact that I cannot tell the truth when I'm put in a test doesn't mean that there are no measures which I can take to bring me where I can tell the truth. Why can't I tell the truth? If you, are, if you are troubled with deceitfulness or guile, find out why you're troubled with deceitfulness or guile and deal with the cause. God expects you to do that. I was telling the group yesterday, God will not blow your nose for you. Even grace will not do that. You have to do that. If you're troubled with insensitivity to your co-workers, find out why. Nine times out of ten, it may be something like hurry. That may be based in turn on a, an insecurity or fear that you're not coming up to par. See, what I mean is, when we come down to putting on the new person, we simply find the ways to work with God in grace 
so that we become different. We can change. And God has given us the substance of righteousness in himself. We have merely to step into it, to say, yes, Lord Jesus Christ, my full intent is to follow you fully. The most important thing in the world for me is to be like you. Open ourselves to teaching. Dwell with others who are in the same way. And receive from them support and admonition. The instruction of the word and of the spirit in our heart can bring us to the point to where we walk and stand and bear the fruits of righteousness as the tree of God. And I close just by reading the verses here from Isaiah 61. Sometimes we quit before we get to this part. We like the first part. We're very familiar with it. But the sentence doesn't close until the end of the third verse. Listen to these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed, anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And then we stop. But wait a moment. Look at the rest of the sentence. This last part is what the first part was supposed to give us. That they may be called trees of righteousness. Some of your versions will say oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that they might show forth his excellence. Your life is a tree. Trees work by digging their roots deeply into the soil. They work not directly by trying to bear fruit, but by reaching for the riches that are placed in their reach where they're planted. And then they bear fruit. Your life is a tree. God planted you where you are. There you are given the gift of being the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Dig your roots deep into the soil of God, and you will abundantly bear the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, show us the way. Help us to plan. Give us your spirit, and help us to embrace the next tribulation we have in joy, because we know that in it we shall see your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there you have it. And if you happen to find yourself as a night janitor with lots of quiet solitude, you might want to give this one a couple of plays. As always, thanks for listening, and have a great week.